Good morning, church. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, welcome. We're glad that you've joined us. We're going to be in Ephesians, as has been mentioned. And so if you have your own Bibles here, I encourage you to open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. Just want to start by pointing something out today about our world. We live in a world in which often people are tempted and people inside the church are no different, tempted to meet different with being hostile. Hear that? We, we meet different with being hostile. Now God takes different, different people for those who are in Christ and he takes different and he builds it into something beautiful. And so we live in a world that often meets different with figuring out how to be hostile, and God takes different for those in Christ, and he builds it in something beautiful. Today we continue in chapter 2 with another word picture for what is the church, and today that word picture is the church is a temple, that God is actually doing something with his people, building, constructing them into something strong and beautiful and God-glorifying. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We find ourselves in... Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 is where we're going to begin. And so I'm going to go ahead and start reading. It says, So then, Paul writing to a church persecutor turned church planner, writing to the church. Verse 11, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who, those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by humans' hands. Talking about the difference, the physical difference between a Jew and everybody else, also known as Gentiles. Verse 12, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that language of far and near is used throughout the Old Testament, generally referring to people's proximity to the temple. And the Gentiles would have been the furthest away by physical proximity. But Paul is using the same language, the same picture to say, but now representing the presence of God, the temple, because of Jesus, the Gentiles have been brought into proximity with God. Continuing. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. Verse 16, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace. We keep hearing that word peace, almost like we need some of it. To you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. A few more verses, we're almost there. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Last verse, in him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in spirit. Slightly different tact today. This morning what I have for you So I'm going to talk about one audience, I'm going to talk about two problems, and I'm going to talk about three God-given realities. That's the structure of our talk today. One audience, two problems, three God-given realities. And that audience, at least here, focused in on is what we call the Gentiles. People who are not Jews, which as far as I know is most of us 
in this room. We had Nanette up here not too long ago. She, she, messy, she, she was talking. Most of us are not ethnic Jews. And we see this come out in the yous of this text all over the place. Verse 11. Remember that you were Gentiles. Verse 12. You were without Christ. Verse 13. You who were far away. Verse 17. You who were far away. Verse 19. So then you are no longer foreigners. That God is, God is addressing the people that we call Gentiles. And I just want to park there for a moment. Help us understand the relational dynamic between Jews and Gentiles. Because it's pretty massive. Very difficult. Pretty harsh. How did a Jew view a Gentile at this time? Gentiles would have been seen through lots of different vantage points by the Jews, but two of the main ones would have been through a moral lens and a power lens. Gentiles would have been viewed as idolatrous on the one hand, and they would have been viewed as oppressors on the other. The Gentiles were people who worshipped false gods, who worshipped non-existence gods. They were committed to self-destructive worship habits, they rebelled against God's design. They were committed to the worship of man-made gods, God, gods that were not faithful, that offered no hope, and did not keep their promises. In fact, in the Old Testament, we see in which God specifically tells his people that he doesn't want them, he doesn't want them intermixing with the Gentiles of the time, with the nations of the time, because he knew that their worship would creep in. But they also viewed Gentiles as oppressors. This is why the Messiah that was long awaited was seen to be a political or military figure. You look at the history of Israel, Egypt to the south, Assyria to the north, Babylon and Persia to the east. They all took their turns enslaving Israel, removing them from their homes, submitting them to horrible treatment. The Gentiles took turns overruling the sovereignty of Israel. Eventually after Persia it was the Greeks and after the Greeks the Romans. And so how did a Jew view the Gentiles? Some complicated overlapping lens that included an oppressor and an idolater. And Paul, writing to those people as they've been enfolded into the body of Christ. But not everyone's taken that very easy because there's some baggage. That's where our problems come in. That's our audience. But there's two problems. The first problem is what I'd like to call a vertical problem. Look at the first part of our text in verse 12. It says, at that time you were without Christ, without the promises of the Messiah, without the Christos, the anointed one, excluded from citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, and without hope and without God in the world. The Gentiles didn't have the history the Jews did. They didn't have their minds saturated, right, with the promises of God. They didn't know what it meant to call God faithful. They didn't have the stories of God's faithfulness to shape that understanding. They didn't have words for the main problems that our world faces. You know, crazy stuff happens, and we love to point fingers, and, and we know ultimately that the, the most significant problem is a sin problem. And because of that, they didn't have any idea of what the solution had to be. The Gentiles entered, for the most part, into the conversation devoid of a lot of that background which means that they were, didn't have a concept for the hope found in God despite living in what is often a hopeless world. Church, this is why here at Groton Bible Chapel, we find it very important to study the Old Testament. This is why we trek through Isaiah. This is why we spend time, our men's and women's Bible study, going through Judges. This is why we're in the midst of Deuteronomy. Because everything that happens in the Old Testament points to the New Testament. 
And the good news is the good news because of everything that led up to it. And Jesus and his followers constantly quote and allude to the Old Testament as it shapes their understanding of God. We see a picture of an unchanging and faithful God. That's important to us as we all kind of belong in some sense to the collective history of God's people. And so that's important. The people, first and foremost, had a vertical problem. But Jesus, by the cross, was the one who came in and brought reconciliation to that. We'll get to that in a moment. Their second problem is what I call a horizontal problem. They had a vertical problem and they had a horizontal problem. The scriptures are full of what you might call antipathy between the Jews and the Gentiles. Even as you go through the gospel and you see how the followers of Jesus think of the Samaritans, how they think of the Romans. There was an antipathy that existed between these peoples, between these nations. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of baggage attached to these kinds of relationships. That within the church, as the church grew, and it wasn't just a subset of Jews who were coming to Jesus, but as it, as it reached far beyond that, as God has, had intended for those who would become a part of God's family, not according to physical heritage, but according to faith. In, in Romans 9, Paul says, not children of the flesh, but children of the promise, that, 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 that as the people become this mixing pot of differences, you'd expect there to be some hostility. Thinking through this this week, so it applies to the church that this body of people that gathers together all over the world on a Sunday morning, that we too face a number of hostilities, don't we? That just because 2,000 years has gone by doesn't mean that hostilities have gone anywhere. You think of the last two years, the different kinds of hostilities that have existed in the world, and man, the enemy uses some interesting tactics to get those hostilities to infect the church too. Think about the kinds of hostilities that many of us have, have uh, perhaps seen or witnessed on the news or, or around within our own circles. Two come to mind. There's more, but here's two. The kind of hostility that you might experience when you apply a, a poor experience to everyone with a similar attribute or preference as someone who wronged you. It's the kind of hostility that we experience. Think about this. You might have difficulty with authority due to an abusive experience you had underneath an authority. Think about tensions you might experience with a member of the opposite sex because of a heart-wrenching experience you had with someone of the opposite sex once upon a time. How those hostilities kind of carry out into people with that similar attribute or preference. Heck, in my own story, I grew up, many of you know, I surrounded by law enforcement in my family. And the town in which much of my family worked was overwhelmingly Hispanic in Southern California. And so one of those family members worked in the gang unit. And the great majority of the gangs that this person uh, ended up working with and having encounters with were Hispanic. So the stories I heard growing up, all the negative stories, were stories about Hispanic gangs. This is what I was exposed to. And unfortunately, that shaped the way that I viewed Hispanic people growing up. And then I grew up, and I moved to Mexico, and I lived there for three years, and Hispanic people are awesome. And the food's good. And the food's good. That's just one example. But we do this. 
It's easy for us to insert hostility into relationships. The second kind of way we find this hostility manifest in the church is when we take a characteristic or preference of a, of a person and, and we reduce our fellow image bearers merely into that thing. Into that thing. We do this with politics. Come election time, many will walk around with their political platforms. I just want you to imagine an apple bucket for me that represents your party. And it includes some really good apples and it includes some really rotten apples. And, and people come 2024 will spend a lot of time convincing themselves that their bucket has no rotten apples and that their opponents have only rotten apples. And then in 2024, many will face the temptation to use the limited bandwidth they have on social media not to identify themselves as a Christian or as an image bearer, but as a Democrat or Republican. With this comes a temptation to reduce others into the same thing. I know everything I need to know about you because I know who you voted for. In fact, if you meet me and you tell me who you voted for, I'd say that tells me very little about you. We do this with masks and vaccines. Oh, he went there. Yes, I did. I don't care. This is what we say. This is what we say in our heads. This isn't me, but this is, this is what some of us are tempted. I don't care about your personal story. I don't care about the immense web of complicated factors that has led you to make this personal decision. Where you stand on masks and vaccines is all I need to know in order to make the judgment as to whether or not you deserve hostility or grace. That's all I need to know. Many in our country are tempted to do this with race. Making assumptions about who you are and reducing you down to a known political, socioeconomic, or cultural quantity based purely on the color of your skin. We're tempted to use melanin as a justifying factor in reducing a complex image bearer into a statistic. And this is what the enemy wants, church. The enemy wants to disunify and de-gospelize our community. The enemy wants to take family and make them strangers. The word in this chapter, it talks about being brought into the, the household of God. It talks about that we are no longer strangers. And what the enemy wants to do is come into the household and make you strangers. The enemy wants to take adopted brothers and sisters and make them cast outs. To take hard incidents of this world and to get believers to tribalize around their particular positions. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We take stances on stuff, church. When it comes to the truth of God's word, we take stances. When it comes to sin, we take stances. But in the gray areas of Christian freedom in which we discern what to do based on the Holy Spirit and being informed by the principles of Scripture, I'm talking about when we tribalize around those kinds of things. We stop talking to one another, church. Let's listen to an African-American uh, brother in Christ talk about how in his church, when the racial injustice stuff started coming through in the news a couple years back, one of the things he, he noticed, sorry, I got an itch in the worst possible spot <laughs> underneath the thing. He started talking about how one thing he noticed is that in his church, the white people talked to the white people about it, and the black people talked to the black people about it. Why? Because they were so afraid of saying the wrong thing, about being misunderstood, about being misrepresented, of offending someone, that they would just rather coexist peacefully. That's not the church. That's like spouses who've turned into roommates in a slowly dying marriage. That's what that is. That's not who we want to be. 
So as we, as we think about this problem of the hostilities, Paul is, is addressing Gentiles who are coming together with their Jewish brothers and sisters, and Jews who are coming together with their Gentile brothers and sisters, all unified by Christ, but vastly different. So what does that actually look like? Well, Paul gives us three God-given realities in this text. And the first one is this, that as a people of God, we actually share a foundation. And when you get to the last three verses of this passage, we kind of anchor ourselves for this idea of the church as a temple. He says in verse, in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, referring to the New Testament, actually here, not the Old Testament, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, meaning this idea that Christ, the cornerstone, is the thing that goes first. It's the thing that, sets, that measures and guides. It is the thing on which and by which everything else is added. And so Christ is that. That's the determining factor. And the apostles and the teachers go off of that. And you and me, we actually get to share all of that. We were built on top of that. And as a brick, you may be a larger brick than me. You may be more worn down than me. You may come from a very different place than me. But at the end of the day, we all get built together on the same foundation. That's the church. What's funny is we see this in other areas of our life all the time. Times in which differences we have with people are overshadowed by things that bring us joy. You go to a football game, okay? And you're there with people that you could disagree with on a thousand things. But when your team scores, you might be, that's the one time you might see, you, may, you might see a dude hug another dude. He'd never do it anywhere else, but in that moment, he'd be kissing guys on the cheek because he's so excited. Because what unites overshadows that which divides. We see this with soldiers at wartime. Paul, to the letter in Philippi, talks about Christians contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. We see when men go out, women go out, and they're fighting, that the things that divide them are far less important than the mission in front of them. You take shared interests, whatever it might be, taking the same class with someone, perhaps being a parent. My wife right over here, you, you could set my wife Katrina, who's very, very social, and she could do this with people who don't have kids, but you put her in any public setting with someone with a child, and she could just talk for hours just based on having, on, on having parenting in common. I know a lot of you could do that. That's all you need. You find something they have in common, you can talk about it. But what's interesting, one of the things we love about our intergenerational and mixed small groups here at the church and Bible studies at the church is the less you have in common with respect to your age and stage of life, typically more, the more you have to focus on Jesus because it's what you have in common. You have gone much deeper there. And there's just something beautiful, again, about that which unites, overshadowing what divides. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, chapter 3, verse 27. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one, one, in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You know, it's interesting, a friend 
in a Bible study on, on Monday morning. I won't say who, but, but uh, we were talking about something different out of Colossians because that's what we're studying right now. And he actually came to this person, he said it, and I told him I'd steal it. He said, he told the group, what, what if to our world today, Paul wrote, there is neither Republican nor Democrat. There is neither masked nor unmasked. I'll add to that, there's neither black or white or Hispanic or Asian. Because when Paul writes this, he's addressing the widest possible spectrum that you can have in terms of who you were born to, your preferences, your uh, cultural ideologies, political pre He's embodying an extremely wide spectrum of people who are united by the fact that they've entrusted their lives to Jesus. First reality is we share a foundation. But we are also bound together. Paul writes in verse 20, verse 21. In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Please note who's doing the what here. We're not the ones doing the but we're the ones being put together. And so one, you have the groundwork laid. And then second, you have the putting together. We're being bound together as bricks by mortar. And though different, we come together for the same purpose. Put together in our commitment to Christ and the commitment to one another that really flows out of that. But what does it look like to be put together? What does it look like, as Paul again writes to, to Philippi in chapter 1 of that letter, to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel? Well, as Nate Park mentions last week, it starts showing up. It starts with being together with the people to whom you were being bound, with whom you're being put together. I'm not just talking about corporate worship on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about with what you do with the people that are the church. Question for you. What do you call a team in which attendance at practices and games are at your convenience? in which very little is demanded of you, in which you don't have to sacrifice much for the good of others on the team. Heck, you don't even have to know their names. What do you call that team? Unfortunately, for some today, that team's called church. Now, I'm constantly blown away by the amazing work of just the people who serve this body and people serve in all sorts of ministries. And one of the things that I've had the privilege of doing over the last few weeks is doing check-ins with our small group leaders. And small group leaders, people who, serve, again, people serve in lots of different ways. This is just one particular way, but just giving up their time to come and to facilitate, to, facilitate, to lead, to help people connect and grow and learn is a beautiful thing. And I hear lots of amazing feedback from people. I hear great things. God is doing such amazing things. But you know, it's not always the case. And for a lot of our group leaders, not, not a lot, for many of our group leaders, the hardest hour of the week is the hour right before group starts. You know why? Because it's when that trickle of texts come in. Sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it. Now, I'm not talking about people who get injured or sick. I'm not talking about people who have work. I'm not talking about uh, um, people who uh, are traveling. I'm not talking about those things. But one of the single greatest discouragements that group leaders come to me with, Zach, don't people know that I'm tired? 
that after working all day, cleaning the house, preparing for this lesson, that I'd like a break? And if I'm in this for them, why aren't they in it for me? I'm really grateful that this isn't something I hear a lot of, but it's something you hear. How does God bind together his people? It begins with those people being together, not just for the sake of being together. We're not taking attendance here on a Sunday morning. We don't want you to show up for just the sake of showing up. We come together to actually accomplish something profound with one another. The spiritual warfare that happens in the setting of a corporate worship, removing distractions to focus in on what God has for us, church, to confess to one another, to pray with one another, to share needs with one another, to fight the lies that the world uh, uh, beats us with, with the truth of the gospel. And I love that I've been in group settings in which someone says something, and right after they finish, someone speaks encouragement into their life using the truths of scripture. It's what they need. It's what we cling to to learn God's word, to engrave it on our hearts and help uh, engrave it on other hearts as well, to grow in our likeness of Jesus as iron sharpens iron. And notice in that phrase, church, that it's not isolation sharpens iron. When we are as committed to this team's games and practices as we are to our own kids' team's games and practices, it's pretty amazing what God does in the hearts and minds of his people as he binds them together. But that putting together doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's done for something beautiful. Now remember, this is what God is doing in the context of people who would naturally feel hostile towards one another. Just have to clarify that, right? That we started with a posture that God is acknowledging there was hostility, but to that hostility, he brought peace. And so as we think, the, think through these three realities, these are almost, in, in, in a way, solutions that, that God brings to where there would naturally occur hostility, really by the blood of the cross. Specifically because in our world, and it just, it's very easy for us as we think about the two different kinds of hostilities. It's very easy for us to say the cross was enough for this, but not enough for this. That Jesus, God in the flesh, who lived the perfect life and died, took, took on death in, in my stead so that I could have the life that he offers, that his blood paid for my sins, that he absorbed the wrath of God on my behalf, that when he did that, he reconciled me to God, but I don't quite, I'm not quite sure if he could reconcile me to people. I don't know if this was enough. And so we, we come to these realities because God speaks truth into that lie. That because we share a foundation, that we overwhelmingly share something that doesn't diminish, that doesn't get rid of our differences, but overshadows them with something far more significant, that he puts us together. And then finally, this, this, this final reality that, that it's with a purpose that we are built up into something beautiful. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is the very end of, the, of our section. In him you are also being built together for what? God's dwelling in the Spirit. We're not just put together, but we're built together. You and me coming together isn't the ultimate end. We're being built into something different, something holy, something that deviates from the world, church. We're being built into a different kind of house, 
a house that is strong, that is beautiful, and God-glorifying. I say it's strong because it opposes the enemy, it withstands the attacks of the one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. It's beautiful because it represents the love and grace and majesty of our God, and it is God-glorifying because this house isn't about how good and great we are, but how good and great our God is. In 2013, my wife and I were tasked with leading a group of young people to East Africa, and we were fairly young ourselves at the times. But when you're uh, serving with YWAM, which is a missions organization, and you're in your mid-20s, you were the old person. And so we found ourselves with a group of young adults, and let me, I just want to frame this for you. Let me frame this. What do you think happens when you take a bunch of kids right out of high school who grew up with the luxuries of American life, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different political persuasions, different denominational beliefs, and heck, we had people from a few different nations that were there. What happens when you take away, you, you take those people and you put them in confined spaces and you take away plumbing? You take away toilets and showers. You reduce their breakfast to what everyone else was eating, which is a cup of tea and a small roll. When laundry must be done by hand. And if you have beds, sometimes you sleep on the ground, but if you have beds, they're pretty uncomfortable. Everything that they could bring had to fit in a backpack that they could carry for miles. This is for two months. And then you take this vastly different group of people with all their personality quirks, dirty and tired, and again, you regularly put them into some confined space where their differences become pronounced extremely quickly. What is it that keeps that group of people from killing each other? One word. I heard it. Jesus. They weren't there because it was easy, and they weren't there for each other. They were there because they loved Jesus, and they were there because they wanted to tell others about Jesus, and at the end of the night, we would often come together, and we had this really cheap, like $50 travel guitar that either myself or, or Kat would play. You remember that, Katrina? And, and we, we wouldn't play it very well, but everyone would sing, and I mean, you only had one or two people who had good voices, but we'd sing nonetheless. And then we'd go to sleep, and the next day we'd go out together, and we'd tell more people about Jesus. And that's our text today, church. As we continue in our series on God's design for covenant community, God's design for his church, looking particularly as he takes different people and builds them into something strong, beautiful, and God-glorifying. Because the enemy wants to turn different into hostility, and God wants to shape the coming together of differences into something strong and beautiful and God-glorifying.